In fact, in a Google search for religious practices, I found out there are at least 37,177 religious beliefs. So we're living in a world where the spiritual possibilities seem absolutely endless. It's almost like we're kind of like we're living in a God buffet where you can just kind of go down the line and just pick out whichever God you like. You might say the whole world's throwing a BYOG party. Bring your own God. It doesn't matter, just pick one. Doesn't matter who you believe in, what you believe in. Just believe in someone or just believe in something. Therefore, I believe a very valid question that I think every Christian should have to answer, and I would think that every non-Christian would want to have answered, is why Jesus? I mean, why is it that every other spiritual, religious, mystical leader who has ever lived should be rejected in favor of following only Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm not just asking the question, why Jesus? I'm asking a a deeper question. Why Jesus only? Why Jesus alone? Why can't it be Jesus and? Why can't you add somebody else? Why can't you make another way? And over the next three weeks, we're going to be exploring why, because believe it or not, it seems like it would be a hard question. It really isn't. It's really kind of easy, and the answer is very easy. The answer is really very simple. And over the next three weeks, I'm going to tell you three things about Jesus that if they're true, and I'm assuming they are, they absolutely differentiate him from every other religious and spiritual figure who has ever lived. As a matter of fact, if they're true, they differentiate Jesus from every other human being who ever has lived, is living, or ever will live. These things are his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now, if what Jesus said about himself is true, if what the gospel writers say about Jesus is true, and if what Christians for 2,000 years have testified about Jesus is true, then according to the scriptures, number one, he lived an unequaled life. Nobody's ever lived a life like he did. He died a unique death. Everybody dies, but nobody died the kind of death he died. And he experienced an unmatched resurrection because the last time I checked, everybody that gets buried stays buried. Everybody that gets cremated stays cremated. The last time I checked is 100% rate. When you're gone, you're gone. So today we're going to look at his life. He lived an unequaled life. Let me tell you what I mean by that. One thing I know is true about all of us. <clears throat> doesn't matter how good you've been or how good you try to be, uh, we would all say there are times we've blown it. There are times we've messed up. There are times we've slipped up. There are times we've made a mistake. And what we tend to do is we kind of pat ourselves on the back, shrug our shoulders, and we say, well, nobody's perfect. And it, it kind of helps us you know, feel better. Now, you might find someone to disagree that nobody's perfect. I was reading the other day about a psychiatrist, and he was having this group therapy session, about 100 people in this, in this session. And, and there were people that had uh, hang-ups. They had addictions. They had uh, a lot of bad habits they were trying to get rid of. So he was trying to kind of build them up and make them feel better. And he said, okay. He said, make sure we're all on the same plane here. He said, has anyone ever known of or ever met a perfect person? And of course, he thought he'd get a unanimous no, but there was one guy in the back, had a real sad face. He raised his hand. He said, yes, sir, um, I have. He said, wait a minute, you, you've heard about a perfect person? He said, yes, sir. 
He said, well, can you tell me who that is? He said, yes. He said, my wife's first husband. Now, there is one person that claimed to be perfect, audacious as it sounds. He said from his thoughts to his words to his deeds, he was absolutely pristine, perfect. His name was Jesus. Now, what may surprise you, or maybe it won't surprise you, that is not a universally held opinion about Jesus. I mean, universally, is Jesus admired? Yes. Is Jesus respected? Yes. Is Jesus bragged about? Yes. Is Jesus kind of lifted up and put somewhat on a pedestal? Yes. But universally, it's certainly not agreed that what he said about himself is true. The United States is the largest, has the largest Christian population in the world. One out of 10 Americans claim to be Christians, highest ratio of believers in the world. Yet, when people were asked this question, did Jesus actually commit sins during his earthly life just like you and just like me? 52% of the people that responded said, sure, he was human. And if he was human, he must have sinned just like we did, just like everybody else. Now that means if this is a crowd of average people in America, that means the majority of you would say, hey, I believe Jesus sinned because Jesus was human. To be human is to err. To be heir is human. Therefore, he must have sinned. Now, let's just say the majority of people are right and a guy like me is wrong. Let's just say, yeah, it may not have been a bad thing. It may not have been a really bad thing. It may not have been a big thing. But yeah, I believe Jesus sinned. I believe Jesus messed up just like everybody else. Well, you need to understand that creates a problem. You say, yeah, for the church. Oh, no, not just for the church, for the world. It, it creates a problem for everybody. Say, so what do you mean? Well, let me state the problem clearly. If Jesus was not perfect, if Jesus was not sinless, here's what that means. He was not who he said he was, the Son of God, because the Son of God, by definition, can't sin or he can't be the Son of God. If he was not who he said he was, the Son of God, then he could not have done what he said he did, die for our sins. If he didn't do what he said he did, then there's no hope for anyone being delivered from sin and having a relationship with God. Because if Jesus was not without sin, he can't be the Savior. And if he's not the Savior, we cannot have salvation. So let me kind of put it to you this way so you'll understand the dilemma that we're in here, all right? If Jesus died in his sins, he could not die for our sins. If Jesus died in his sins, he could not die for our sins. A sinner cannot be the savior of other sinners. A drowning man cannot save another drowning man. So if Jesus was not a sinless savior, he was not a savior because only a sinless savior can save sinners. Now, you may say, okay, let's just say he was sinless. What has that got to do with me? How does that help me hack it on Monday? How does that help me be a better dad, a better mom, a better wife, a better husband? How does that help me be a better employee? How does that help me with all the struggles that I'm facing in my life and all the battles that I face in my life? Well, here's how it helps you. If Jesus is who he said he was, sinless, the son of God, and he did do what he said he did, if that is true, 
That means he can give us hope with all the temptations that we face and all the failures that we have and all the faults that we battle, that we have a Savior who is absolutely perfect. Now, there is a passage in this book called the Bible. It's in a book called Hebrews. And if you want to look it up in your Bible or look on your phone, it's uh, in, the, in the New Testament. It's really back toward the back, almost in the, in, it, uh, about five books left of the book of Revelation. And, it's, and we're in Hebrews chapter four. And I'd invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter four because there's a passage in that, in that book that tells us in, that, 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 that there's a very practical and powerful truth that applies to you and me every day because Jesus Christ was sinless. And in this passage, we're told why Jesus lived an unequal life and how we can live a life that would never be possible without Jesus. Now, I want to make this very plain. Everybody can live a life without Jesus, and most people do. But there's a life with Jesus that you can live that's impossible if you live a life without Jesus. You say, all right, why is it such a big deal? Why are you hammering the point? Why are you taking the minority view? Why do you, why do you emphasize and insist Jesus was sinless? What does that mean for me? Three things. Number one, Jesus confronted temptation like us. Jesus confronted temptation like us. Now, I gotta ask a simple question. Make sure you're awake this morning. How many of you on a daily basis face temptation? Would you just raise your hand? All right. You wanna be honest? You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you were tempted to stay home and stay in bed and not come to church this morning? I'm not gonna ask you to, yep, I see that hand back there. Thank you for your honesty. God bless you, all right? And that guy's, look, some of you said, yeah, man, it was kind of cloudy and been storming all night. And you know, I really wanted to stay in bed. Can I be honest? I'm the pastor, so did I. All right, so we're in the same boat, all right? So you say, yeah, we face temptation every day. Well, the author of Hebrews says, let's take a look back at the life of Jesus. And he says, here's what we're going to find. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. That's an amazing thing. One thing Jesus has in common with every person who has ever lived, and that is he was a human being. Had you lived 2,000 years ago and you'd walked up on Jesus, you would have looked at a man who looked just like a human being. He would have talked like a human being. He would have walked like a human being because he was a human being. And one of the reasons he became a human being is so he could experience what it would be like to be a human being. And every human being experiences temptation. Nobody's immune to temptation. Nobody's above temptation. Nobody ever gets old too old for temptation. And that includes Jesus. And the author of Hebrews says, guess what? He confronted temptation every day just like we do. That's why we're told he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. The word there is the Greek word sympathos, which, which is, gives us the English word sympathy. In other words, what he's saying is Jesus felt what we felt when we're tempted. He said, I felt that. He experienced what we experienced when, you're, when, when we're tempted. In other words, when Jesus came to planet earth, he didn't live in some ivory tower and kind of observe what it was like to be a human being. He said, no, I want to be a human being just like you. I want to know what you go through. I want to know what you feel. I want to know what you face. I want to know what you experience. I was reading the other day. I, I didn't know this. If you're a pianist or you're a musician, you may know this. 
If you put two pianos in the same room, if we had two pianos up on this platform right now, one piano here and one piano there, and everybody was very quiet, it's kind of an amazing thing. If you strike a note on this piano, that same note will be struck on that piano. Even though it's not touched by anybody else, you strike a note on this piano, that same note will sound on that piano. It's what they call sympathetic resonance. One piano will feel and experience and reproduce what the other piano has had sounded on that piano. Jesus Christ's body was an instrument just like ours. He could resonate. He had sympathetic resonance with our temptation. So when you like me and you battle every day to do what's right and you battle not to do what is wrong, every time that happens, Jesus is looking at you and saying, you know what? I know exactly how you feel. I went through exactly the same thing. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking right now. You say, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute, time out. You just said he was sinless. Yes, he was. Well, then he never gave in to temptation. No, he didn't. Well, now, <laughs> how does he really know how I feel? And how does he really identify with me if he never actually gave in to temptation? Well, let me give you an example. Just because you experience something doesn't necessarily mean you have the best understanding of it. We're told that a lot of times, you know. Well, you won't know what it's like until you try it. You won't really understand it unless you, you know, you do it. Well, that's not totally true. I'll give you an example. Uh, several decades ago, I had an operation on my back. Uh, I'd been in back pain for almost uh, nine months. I mean, terrific back pain, horrific back pain. I didn't know what was wrong. I went, to a ortho, I, went, I went to an osteopath, I went to a chiropractor, I went to a medical doctor, I went to an orthopedic doctor, and, and nobody could find out what was wrong with me. And finally, I went to a neurosurgeon, the finest, one of the finest neurosurgeons in, in all of the Southeast. And uh, he operated on my back. Now, I don't understand one thing about back surgery, okay? I, I don't know anything about it at all. This doctor, who, as I said, one of the best neurosurgeons that, that I think's probably ever lived, he had performed thousands of back surgery. Now, he had never had back surgery on himself. He had never had back trouble himself. But what qualified him to do the surgery is he actually knew my problem better than I did. He knew how to treat it better than I did because his experience with back trouble actually was greater than my experience. He knew I had a ruptured disc. I didn't. He knew how my ruptured disc was affecting my back. I didn't. He knew what had to be done to take care of my back. I didn't. So even though he had never had back trouble, even though he had never had back surgery, in a real way, he understood my situation even better than I did. That's what's true of Jesus. He understands everything about you better than you do. You say, wait a minute, I I'm still not quite clear. Well, let me make it real easy. I know he was tempted in every way, the same way we are, because I, you may not realize this, but God teaches, the Bible teaches, there's really only three ways you can be tempted. Only three ways. As a matter of fact, one of his disciples, John, laid this out. Here's what John said. He said, for everything in the world, now this is everything, John's not leaving anything else. Out. And then he tells us three things. The lust of the flesh, that's one way to be tempted. The lust of the eyes, that's the second way to be tempted. And the pride of life, third way to be tempted, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now, John said you can categorize every temptation in basically three ways. And I'm going to kind of simplify them, okay? You can be tempted with your appetites. 
You can be tempted with your ambitions or you can be tempted in your attitudes. And amazingly, when you read about the temptation of Jesus, if you don't know about it, I'll explain it very briefly. Satan tempted Jesus in exactly those three ways. He appealed to his appetite, he appealed to his ambition, and he appealed to his attitude. Let's go back. If you don't know the story, I'm gonna pretend you don't. Jesus had been in the desert fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I don't think you have to be a rocket scientist to figure out. If you've been not eating or drinking 40 days or 40 nights, you are, you're not just hungry, you're hungry. You're hungry. You are famished, all right? You're ready for something to eat. You're ready for something to drink. Now, if you remember, if you know the Bible story, the very first thing that Satan tells Jesus to do, there was a bunch of rocks lying around. He said, Lord, he said, Jesus, why don't you turn those rocks into bread? What was he appealing to? Somebody tell me. His appetite, right? His appetite. So today, what does Satan do with us? He tries to take a legitimate appetite, a legitimate desire, and he says, okay, I want you to fulfill that in an illegitimate way. So for example, God gives us a sexual appetite. Satan says, sleep around. God gives us a physical appetite for food. Satan says, become a glutton, overeat. God gives us an appetite to prosper and, and, and to provide for our families, to make money. What does Satan do? Get greedy, get all, hoard it all for yourself. So Satan appeals to our appetites just like he did with Jesus. Second way, remember what he did? He shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. He took him up to heaven. Look at all the kingdoms. He said, you can have all of these kingdoms. You can rule all of these kingdoms. All you have to do is worship me. In other words, bypass the cross, detour around the cross. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to bleed. You don't have to die. You just do it my way. You just take the low road, not the high road. Take the easy road, not the hard road. Well, what, that, what did that appeal to? His ambition. Hey, get what you want. You deserve this. You ought to have this. You shouldn't have to go through that. You get what you want the way you want it, when you want it. Now, what does he do with us today? He tells us to sell our souls for every successful thing this world has to offer. Power, prestige, position, possessions, popularity. I pastored people all of my ministry. I've watched them do it. They sacrificed their family. They sacrificed their friends on the drive to get ahead, have more, climb the social economic ladder. He does it every day. Then he tempts Jesus by taking him to the top of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, hey, why don't you throw yourself down? Because you know God won't let you hurt yourself. You know God will command his angels to stop your fall. You know God will protect you. What was he doing? He was tempting his attitude. He was saying, look, why don't you look out for number one? Why don't you do what you want to do? Forget about what God wants you to do. And here's the point. Here's, here's the point I want you to understand. Why do you even find the temptation of Jesus in the Bible? Why did the gospel writers make sure that we knew Jesus was tempted in that desert three different times in three different ways? Why is that even the Bible? Because Jesus wanted to make a point. He got in the game. He played by the rules that we play by. He didn't pull rank. He didn't cheat. And oh, by the way, he used the same two things to overcome temptation you and I can use to overcome temptation. What did he do? He quoted scripture and he surrendered to God. That's it. We've got everything we need to win the battle of temptation every single day. We've got the word of God 
And we've got the Spirit of God. And if we'll take the Word of God and say, okay, God, you said to do this. You said not to do that. I'm surrendered to you. You can win that battle. So Jesus confronted temptation just like us. So I want you to remember the next time you're tempted and you look into the eyes of Jesus, he's looking at you and saying, I know exactly how you feel. But there's something else that's true. He also conquered temptation for us. He didn't just confront temptation like us. He conquered temptation for us. Now, the author of Hebrews presents us with this unparalleled claim for anyone who has ever lived. Listen to what he says. We do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. He's just like us. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. But now listen to this. Yet he did not sin. Literally, that's only two words in the Greek language. It simply says, without sin. Yet without sin. Now, to understand what an unbelievable statement that is, you've got to understand what sin does to all of us. See, let me tell you something that's true about, about even a pastor, and it's true about us. We don't really take sin that seriously. I mean, let's just be honest about it. Even those of us who know Jesus and love Jesus, we really don't take sin that seriously. You know, you think about how our culture's changed. Things that we used to just gasp at that would have happened 50 years ago, we don't even yawn at it today. We just don't. It's just not that big a deal. Well, everybody's doing it. You know, not a lot I can do about it. Not a lot I can say. And see, to understand what a statement that is, you've got to understand what sin does to all of us because sin affects all of us in four ways. First of all, sin affects us in who we are. Sin affects who we are. Say, so what do you mean? I know who you are. So what do you mean? You know my name? Oh, no, I know more than that. You're a sinner. Because I'm a sinner. Because we're all sinners. Why are we all sinners? Because we're all born in sin. We were born with a sinful nature. We are sinners by nature. We are born that way. That's who we are. Now, because sin affects who we are, sin affects what we do. In other words, because we're sinners, we engage in sinful acts. Our sinful nature, you say, why, why do I do things I know I shouldn't do? Because you got a sinful nature. That's the root of your sin. The fruit of your sinful acts is your sinful nature. See, our sinful nature is the root of why we do what's wrong, and what we do wrong is the fruit of our sinful nature. In other words, the reason why we do bad things is because we're born with a bad nature. The reason why we sin is because we're born sinners. The reason why we do wrong is because we are wrong. Sin affects who we are. Sin affects what we do. And therefore, sin affects the way we think. Even the way you think is contaminated by sin. Because think about this. Sin's not just a matter of the hands. It's a matter of the head. So, how many of you ever have lustful thoughts? I'm gonna raise my hand first. Okay, yeah. How many of you ever have selfish thoughts? I'm raising my hand. Yeah. How about this? How many of you ever have angry thoughts? Yeah, you know that guy cuts you off on the freeway? You know what you're not thinking when he does that? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not what you're thinking. Now we all have angry thoughts. We all have evil thoughts. All right, let's get real. Yeah, there are times we have racist thoughts. And yeah, there are times we have greedy thoughts. 
Because even the way we think from the time we're born is wrong. Because sin affects the way we think. And because sin affects who we are and what we do and the way we think, sin affects where we fail. Sin affects where we fail. Let me tell you what I mean by that. You know what we think sin is? We think sin is when you do the wrong thing. Well, that's only half right. Sin is not just when you do the wrong thing. Sin is when you fail to do the right thing. There are sins of commission. We all know about those. But there are also sins of omission. You can sin by doing something you shouldn't do. And you can sin by failing to do something you should do. Now, when you understand that, when the author of Hebrews says, Jesus was without sin, that's just breathtaking. I mean, that's unbelievable. And what's even more incredible is when you read the Gospels, you know what you'll find out? It wasn't just the author of Hebrews who said he was without sin. You know who else said he was without sin? His family said he was without sin. His friends said he was without sin. His foes even had to admit he was without sin. He was just, in every way you can imagine, he was just perfect. One of his three closest friends, one of the men in his inner circle, the disciple named John, they were best buds. He saw Jesus up close and personal for three years. He hardly ever left his side. He saw him in every situation. Listen to what John said. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. In other words, he was perfect in who he was. He was born without sin. He didn't have a sinful nature. He was not just pure on the outside. He was pure on the inside. Well, another disciple, another one of his best buddies, another one of his inner circle, a disciple named Peter, here's what he said about Jesus. He committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. In other words, he was just perfect, not only in who he was, but in what he did. I mean, every time he said something, it was always the right thing. How many of us, I'll, I'll just raise my hand for everybody. You said something and the moment you said it, you wish you hadn't said it. I've done that preaching before. Not one time did Jesus ever say something and say, I wish I hadn't said that. I'd like to take that back. Never said the wrong thing. Imagine every time he did something, it was always the right thing. He was not sinful in who he was. He was not sinful in what he did. And then a man by the name of Paul, who by the way, at one time was the greatest hater of Jesus in the world, who went to being the greatest lover of Jesus in the world after he met Jesus. Here's what he wrote about Jesus. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus was just perfect, not in who he was, not just in what he did, but in the way he thought. I mean, think about that. He didn't even know sin mentally. Sin never even entered into his mind. He never had a lustful thought, an angry thought, a racist thought, an impure thought, an evil thought, a selfish thought, a greedy thought. He didn't even know it in his own mind. He was perfect in the way he thought. And then finally, Jesus himself made this audacious, bold statement when he asked a question I would never ask and no one should ever ask. He said this, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? 
In other words, he was just perfect where we fail because he never failed. And when he asked that question, you know who was in the audience that day? His family was there. His friends were there. His foes were there. You know, you know what's been one of the hardest parts about my ministry, about being a preacher? And you're going to laugh maybe when you say, and I'm not, it's kind of funny, but it's not. Think about preaching to your mom and dad. Think about preaching to your brothers. You think I'm ever going to get up here and say, who can convict me of my sin? My family would be lined up. Can I go first? I can hear my, I can hear my dad right now. Son, I think I can handle this one. His family was there. His friends were there. His foes were there. And when he said that, he basically said, I'm declaring open season on me. Bring it on. It's almost like he got the FBI, the CIA, the IRS together and said, can any of you here convict me of one sin? Well, as of this moment, nobody yet has stepped up to the plate. Now, some of you may be saying, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Jesus was accused of and crucified for the crime of blasphemy because he claimed to be God. That's true. But you need to understand something about sins and crimes. Okay, this, is, this will be worth coming to church for today. All sin is a crime against God. Got it? All sin is a crime against God. But not all crimes are sins against God. So, okay, I don't understand. Let me give you an example. In many countries, it is a crime to share the gospel. But that's not a sin. Maybe a crime, it's not a sin. Because God commands us to share the gospel. Yes, Jesus was accused of the claim of, 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 of the crime of claiming to be God, but he was innocent of that crime of claiming to be God because he was God and he never committed a sin. So let me just stop right here and tell you, here's the choice now we've got to face. Here's the choice every unbeliever has to face. Here's the choice every skeptic has to face. Here's the choice if everybody says, I'm just not buying into this Jesus business, this is the choice you've got to face. Either Jesus was deluded he thought he'd never sinned. He was just nuts. He was deceptive. He knew he sinned. He just lied about it. Or he was divine because only God never sins. So here's a man in 33 years of living, never lost sleep over a guilty conscience, never blushed over a shameful comment, Never regretted any sinful conduct. Think about it. No unclean thought ever flashed through his mind. No unkind word ever crossed his lips. No unrighteous deed ever came from his hands. Not one. So for 33 years, or 396 months, or 1,720 weeks, or 12,047 days, or 298,120 hours, or 17,347,680 minutes, Jesus Christ never sinned. No religious leader can say that. No spiritual leader can say that. No civic leader can say that. 
No moral leader can say that. Only Jesus can say that because he was just perfect. But it gets better. Because Jesus confronted temptation like us, and because Jesus conquered temptation for us, you ready for this? This is the best part. Jesus combats temptation with us. He combats temptation with us. Now, I know you say, okay, hey, that's real great, and that's good theology, and that's fine. How does that help me? Can you, I, mean, I, I need some help here. I got an addiction. I got a bad habit. I'm, I'm into this. I'm into that. I need help. Well, Jesus, you're saying this, okay, Jesus was sinless, but I'm not. Yep. He fought temptation, and he beat it, but sometimes we don't. Yep. So tell me how a sinless Savior can help a sinless person like me live the life that I ought to live. Well, the answer is found in the next verse. Let us then, that is, therefore, in other words, in light of the fact we have a sinless Savior, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now watch this. This is so good. Because Jesus Christ was the sinless Son of God, he has opened the door for us to go into the very throne room of God anytime you want to. You don't have to make an appointment. You don't have to call ahead. You don't have to get on the calendar. You don't have to go through an assistant. He says, anytime you want to, the door is open. You can walk right into the throne room of God. And guess what? When you do, and especially when you're being tempted, when especially when you're under pressure, especially when you're in the fight of your life, you can go in there and you can face temptation. You can fight temptation. You can beat temptation because we've got the two things we need when we face temptation. We've got mercy and we've got grace. So, okay, why those two things? Okay, how many of you at least once in your life fought the battle of temptation and you lost? Okay, every time I go to the varsity, I lose every single time. You say, yeah, that's me. In fact, I am so tired of losing. So you fight this battle of temptation and you lose it. You blow it and you're guilty and you feel sick. You feel, I, I, I said I wasn't gonna do it again. I did it again. What do you need at that moment in your life? You need mercy. You need a God that will say, I forgive you. You need a God that will pick you up, clean you up, wash you off, and say, okay, let's try again. Let's start over. You need mercy. You need it for the past. But now we're in today. So I know I'm facing temptation today, and I know I'm going to face it tomorrow. What do I need then? I need grace. I need God's grace to strengthen me, to keep me from sin. So when you become a child of God, here's what he say. When you become a child of God through faith in this sinless Savior who dies for you, he comes to live in you so that you don't face temptation alone. You face it together. You don't fight temptation alone. You fight it together. Listen, Jesus didn't come just to get victory for himself. Jesus came to give victory to us. Jesus did what he did in the desert to say to us, 
you can do that too. You can whip him too. You can beat temptation too. You can live victorious too. A great writer put it this way. He said, the life that Jesus lived qualified him for the death that he died and the death that he died qualifies us for the life that he lived. So let me answer the question. Why Jesus? And why Jesus only? And why Jesus alone? Let me make it real plain so you understand, okay? God is holy and God is just. Now, if God is holy, he can't condone sin. And if God is just, he must condemn sin. He can't just let humanity off the hook. He can't just turn his back and pretend it didn't happen. He can't just sweep it under the rug. Sin must be punished. So here's the dilemma. Since I'm a sinner and I'm guilty and my sin must be punished, if God cannot condone my sin and God must condemn my sin, then how in the world can I be saved from my sin? That's the problem. And the only solution to that problem and the only answer to that question and the only cure for that sickness is a sinless Savior. See, God condoned what Jesus did because he lived a perfect life. But then he turned right around and he condemned what I did in Jesus because of his sinless life. He could pay for my sins. I want you to hear me carefully. I say this to the Buddhist, I say it to the Muslim, I say it to the Hindu, I say it to the Jew, I say it to everybody, believer or unbeliever. Nobody else makes that cut. Nobody else achieves that grade. When it comes to living a perfect life, there are only two grades. It's not pass, fail, it's 100 or zero. And Jesus is the only one who scored a perfect 100. So, I Googled a list, went on, the, went on the computer, and I Googled a list by some of the greatest historical experts in the world who chose the top 10 leading religious figures of all time. I'm gonna put them up here on the screen in descending order. I want you to take about 10 seconds while I'm talking right now. Just think about how many, you, let's see how many you think you'll get on this list. Okay, we're talking about the top 10 religious leaders of all time. This is what the top historical experts said. As they look back in history, they said, these are the top religious leaders of all time. Now, just kind of have a little fun with it. Just, let's just see how many that, some of you will be surprised at, and, and you won't get, but you'll get some of them, okay? So we're gonna take them in descending order. They said number 10 was Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Scientists. Number nine was Joseph Smith Jr., the founder of Mormonism. Number eight, Moses gave the Ten Commandments. Number uh, 10, 9, 8, 7, Martin Luther inspired the Protestant Reformation. Number six, I wouldn't have thought about this, Zoroaster, I bet nobody thought about him. Zoroaster, founder of Zoroastrianism, first historically acknowledged world religion. Five, Confucius, founder of Confucianism, which is why they're all confused. <laughs> Krishna, major avatar of Hinduism. Gautama Buddha, founder of Buddhism. Number two, Mohammed, prophet of Islam, writer of the Quran, and then drum roll please, Jesus of Nazareth. Now you may say, awesome, wonderful. They got it right. He deserves to be first. I take exception. I take great exception. Jesus doesn't deserve to be first. First, 
He deserves to be only. It is an insult to put him with anybody else. It is an insult to put him on any other list. It's an insult to put him in a lineup with anybody or any other religious leader. It makes no sense because every other one of those that I just listed, they all had flaws. They all had failures. They all had problems and they were in no way perfect. Only Jesus was just perfect. So, why Jesus? <laughs> why not Jesus? Let's pray together. With heads bowed and with eyes closed. Do you know Jesus?